Okay, so welcome. I'm Beverly Ross, title Clinging to Hope. And that title is uh, a phrase that I repeat repetitively daily. I wake up in the morning talking about clinging to hope. I go to bed at night thinking and praying about clinging to hope. So this isn't just a title for me. This is a lifestyle for me. Um, I usually start by telling you my story, j just a brief version of my story, so you know where I'm coming from. And some of you have heard me speak, and you're fully aware of my story. But uh, eight years ago, our daughter, Josh's older sister, got really, really sick. She was 31. She was diagnosed with the flu. Really, we found out about three days later, Jenny never had the flu at all. She had group A strep and she was fighting for life. February 4th, 2010. On February 8th, she almost died three times, and repetitively during that experience, we're asking our nurse, anybody that came in the room, we're going, is there hope? And our first couple of nights, we had a nurse, Shannon's her name, we're still friends, and she would just give us the thumbs up, yes, yes. One of our doctors had a doctor for every body part, and he would look at me in the face, and he would say, there's always hope. There's always hope. February 17th, I amputated her legs. February 20th, a seizure started, and February 22nd, we left the hospital to go tell a nine-year-old that her mommy was gone. Jenny and I had been on this exploration for hope for several years, because Jenny had one child easily, and could not get pregnant again. No matter how many prayers, what, I mean, treatments, pills, treatments the cost of a car, she just could not have another baby. And so hope became a word between the two of us. My home was decorated with hope, and so was hers. You know, plaques, coffee mugs, plates, uh, pillowcases. My purse had hope on it. Yeah. We were just clinging to hope. It was a word that we used repetitively between us, and she and her best friend used it a lot, too. <clears throat> Is there hope? I think that's a question that we need to know. Now, since Jenny's death, there's a lot of vocabulary changes that I've made. And, and you may see me do this in, in our time together this morning. I usually look up and left when I'm searching for an emotional word or a different word. And frequently when I'm speaking, I'm, I'm like, oh, that's not what I want to say. That's not the word I want to use. Because it means something different to me now. One of those words is blessing. I could do the whole hour on that word. But it goes like this. With God's blessing, we tie, we as believers, we as followers of Jesus tie in with that. We are blessed when we have his presence his love, and his favor. Truth? But then what we do is we use the word blessing when we get our way. The Lord has blessed me with a better job. The Lord has blessed me with the home I love. The Lord has blessed us that we're at Pepperdine right now. I used that word in my prayer with them this morning. Thank you for blessing us that we have this really cool place and we've made new friends and, and the blessing of just being here. But let me give you this example. February 22nd, 2010, a mom pulls up under the uh, awning of Baylor Grapevine and her daughter gets in the car. Her daughter that's been really sick. And so she begins to put it on social media and at church the next Sunday, etc. It said, the Ross family, let's just say, was so blessed they got to bring their daughter home. And isn't that true? Wouldn't we be blessed if we brought our daughter home? But then the question that hangs 
that I fight for for my granddaughter to have faith is, is the Ross family blessed when we didn't get to pull up under the awning? Because when we tie his love, his presence, and his favor with his blessing, then we've got to ask, are we still blessed when we don't get our way? That's important language for the next generation. I guess two after me. It's important language for me to use with my granddaughter. That the Lord's presence invades even when we don't. Somebody say truth. Isn't that right? Yes. That the Lord's favor is still on us even when we don't. His presence, his love, and his favor doesn't depend on if we get our way. But I don't know what word to use there. I've heard Chris Seidman say, I live from the blessing and not for the blessing. And I get that. But I think we've still got to use the word blessing. The other one that ties in with that happened this last week. Somebody, and it happens every week. So-and-so got, got well. The Lord is so good. I've never done this yet because I don't want to be a smart aleck. But what I want to write is God is good even if that didn't happen. Amen. We've just got to watch our vocabulary. Because our business in this room, our business in the walk of faith is to encourage other people's faith, right? And to shield up and shore up our own. Another word. And the Lord, we've had lots of conversations about this, and I want you to know he hears my heart with this. It's going to sound sassy to you, but I need to say this. Another one, when Jenny was in, people would come and they would hold our hands and they would say things like, you just need to trust God. You just need to trust God. And don't we say that when we don't know what else to say? Just trust God. And at one point, about eight weeks after death, when I finally could pray with words and not just do Romans 8 groaning, I said, God, trust you exactly for what? You see, I talked for years. I'm getting goosebumps, even as or one of my friends would say God bumps as I'm saying this. I had talked for years, what I'm telling you right now, about it doesn't mean you get your way, because I wanted Jenny to hear that. But now I'm walking that out. Trust him for what? And what I came to the conclusion of is we don't trust God that he's going to give us what we want. My trust can't be based on that. But I trust God that he's going to show up and he's going to be who he said he is. What we trust God for is to live his character. God didn't, Jenny did not die for God to be mean to us. That's not the character of the Lord. We trust him to show up in the midst. And right there, I've got to say, is so important for my granddaughter Malaya to hear is that God's presence absolutely does not depend on if we feel him God is in the room whether you feel him or you don't God is in your car whether you feel him or you don't God is with you because that is his promise. That is his character. Or are you tracking with me? Do you agree with that? And then there's another word, and it's the word I want to talk about for just a moment this morning, the word of hope. I told you all through the hospital, good hope. I wanted Jenny to live. I made a list of a few other hopes that I have. I still hope, I pray that my children and my grandchildren will remain faithful. I hope that will be true. We have fought for Malaya to have faith. I want her to stay faithful. I want the four others. We call them the lit lit littles. Malaya's big. About six years later, we had four in a row. I want them to be men and women of faith. 
I want my marriage to stay in a sweet spot. We were married when we were 19. We busted our tails at marriage. And that's why I do marriage work now. That's what I do professionally, marriage and grief. I'm a counselor. She made it difficult for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but I want that. I hope that our marriage stays in a sweet spot. I hope that my children and my grandchildren outlive me. I hope that my body stays healthy. Uh, my mom died with severe dementia. I hope my mind stays clear as long as I can walk on dirt. I would love for that to happen. It robbed my mom of her speech. I want my friends to walk in faith. Would you agree with me that those are good hopes? Mm -hmm. Jenny's hope for a baby. On her 31st birthday, she spoke into it a group of women that she had assembled and spoke a word of blessing. And her word over me is, Mom, you have always given me hope for whatever is to come. Hope. Hope. Shortly after Jenny's death, when Rick began to speak, uh, and as he traveled speaking, he typically spoke from Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. And no matter how many times I heard my man speak on Luke 24, I hung on every word, every tongue. And I'm so grateful that the Lord put that in you to do that because it was, it was breath for me. And when I say breath for me, wouldn't you agree that when we have hope, I mean, I'm talking hope, that is definitely from the Holy Spirit. It is not an accident for us to engage in hope. Look with me at this little section if you want to, or I'm going to read it to you. Jesus, they did not know that he was risen yet, so they believed that Jesus is still dead. And this is probably a man and a woman walking this road, and you can just, as a griever, if you walked a road of grief, you get what's happening here. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. If I just stopped and closed my eyes for a moment, I feel like I can hear the conversation. Can you believe? Why? What happened? Didn't we hope? And then the writer goes on, Luke goes on to tell us a little bit more. They talked and discussed these things with each other. But Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And you don't know the things that have happened here in these days? I mean, most of us in this room, if you walked a green story, I've walked in Walmart before and gone, Are you kidding me? How are you people buying carrots? Do you not know Jenny died? I mean, you know, do you not know my husband just left me? I've got some friends that say, Do you not know the diagnosis we just had? And people were walking into our churches every Sunday with that. What? You're acting like things are normal. Do you not know? And that's what they were saying with Jesus. Do you not know what happened? But then they go on in just a moment, and then they say, Jesus asked them what things about Jesus. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him, but we had hoped 
And the rest of the story goes on and outlines Jesus revealing himself to them as he broke bread and that their eyes were open. And they even said, were our hearts not burning within us? Were our hearts not, hearts not burning? You see, it's been a few years ago. I was standing on a stage keynoting an event. So I'm in front of hundreds of women and I'm teaching on Luke 24. And all, I don't like when this happens to me. It's only happened, I think, this one time, maybe one other but I'm standing up on a mic, and I walk away from my notes for a moment. It's like, i got to say something new. But I hadn't really thought through it really clearly, but this is what I said. What the Lord calls us to is not lowercase h hope. And those are good hopes. But what the Lord Jesus calls us to, what Paul calls him, is the hope of glory. What Peter calls him is the living hope. Hope. And that, my friends, is with a capital H. Mm-hmm. And nobody diminishes that hope within us. Good hopes was my list. Good hopes. If you shared your list today, wouldn't they be good hopes? But would you agree with me? This isn't even going to roll off my tongue very well. Wouldn't you agree with me that even the best of our good hopes can be a distraction to us living out our faith yeah. with capital H hope? I can be obsessed about some of these hopes. And so I want us to turn to Peter, 1 Peter. And I want to be really clear as I'm saying this because I do, I do believe, I believe, I believe, I believe that my lowercase h hopes matter to Jesus. I believe that they matter to him. But we cannot allow them to become a distraction to him. It's got to be about him. So, when we look at 1 Peter, we're going to start in 1. His spirit, our breath of hope, my pain does not diminish his spirit. And every time I start to read 1 Peter, I'm reminded of a phrase I go to frequently during communion on Sundays in Luke 22, where Jesus says, Oh, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But I pray for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, look at this view of right there, strengthen your brothers. There's a plan to the sifting. Now, I do not believe, I don't believe that God creates our siftings. But I do believe they're from the power of darkness. And for right now, God allows us to be sifted. I believe that. But Jesus, as Josh spoke about last night in Romans 8, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, are praying for us. They're taking our groans to the Lord. He's praying. And what did he pray? Not that Peter would be physically healthy and well. He prayed that his faith would not fail. And he prayed that when he could get back up, he would strengthen his brothers. That he would strengthen other people. He would speak a word of hope into faith. So as we turn to 1 Peter, I've got five things I want us to look at in 1 Peter for just a moment. And this is going to be really hard. I taught, uh, man, probably four months on 1 Peter last year and absolutely fell in love with it. Fell in love with this little letter. Let's start in uh, verse 3. I'm in 1 Peter 1.3 and it says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy He's given us new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith, I love this imagery, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. But now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Mm, these come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine <clears throat> and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, I love this part. I've tried to shorten it. I've tried just to read one verse, but I absolutely can't listen to this. This is so good. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He's connecting joy and suffering. Do you hear that? You're filled with a joy, a glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith. And if you were in my office right now, I'd lean across from my chair to the couch and I would hold your hands during this part. The goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace, that grace was to come to you, searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that now have been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. How many of you, every time you hear that line, hear the acapella song, angels <laughs> long to look into, yes, it's just angels long to look into these things. So let's talk about what are some of the things that Peter reveals in his word? What are some of the things? Would you agree with me that out of what we just saw, that we can see, out of the scripture we just looked at, trials have purpose in faith. But faith gives purpose to trials. Trials have purpose in faith. God is not going to let, ah, God is not going to let one moment of your pain go unredeemed when we give it to him. Not one dashed hope will go unredeemed when given to him. Now, I want to be really clear with that because I, I need you to hear this. It does not mean you won't still ache. It does not mean the pain will stop. I will ache for my daughter as long as there's breath in my body. That's not the point. The point is that there will be purpose to minister. There will be purpose to bring glory to the Lord. There will be purpose given that we can't even fathom or imagine. Does that give any feedback? Are you tracking with me? As a counselor, I end every session with two questions. Are you leaving today with hope? And are you leaving today with some practical tools to help you live out your hope? And so I believe that Peter answers that last question. I think he answered the first one through what we've just read. We have hope. But I believe he gives us some practical tools of how to live that out. And so there's so many of them, but I picked out five for right now. I picked out five for right now. And number one, he says, as you prepare your minds for action, we prepare. We get our thoughts ready. In verse 13, the very next one, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope 
fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, don't get caught up with evil desires when you lived in ignorance. But lean in to hope. I don't believe there is anything passive about that statement. That requires action. You don't wake up one morning and go, oh, whoa, my mind is set. Oh, whoa, hope is mine. We wake up one morning and go, we're going to set it again, Lord. We're giving it to you. You see, the example that I use in in marriage is like this. That when uh, God made us in his likeness, I believe that it means, now I used to teach first grade, okay, so I know this is way simple, but it works in my world. God made us with the ability to love and want to be loved. That's God, isn't it? And he made us with the ability to choose and to want to be chosen. That's how we're in his likeness. And for a very long time, I was taught in marriage work to teach husbands to love wives and wives to love husbands. And I don't want to brag or anything, but I'm really, really good at that. (laughs) But then recently, some research came out that said that's not enough. If wives don't know how to receive their husband's love, it's like the gift never happened. And if husbands don't know how to receive the gift of love, it's like the gift never happened. When we walk around life like this, and I don't believe people necessarily choose to walk around like this. I think you choose to walk around like this. But I think from childhood pain, from stories yet unheard, maybe even from stories heard, Christine Kane, her story made my heart ache the other morning of thinking of a little baby that was a number instead of a beautiful name. But yet she chose. And I think some of us still do this spiritually with God. But when he says, set our hope, he means whatever happened. Open your hands. Open the hands of your heart to me. Have open palms to receive my favor, my love, and my presence. Keep them open. Because doesn't it, if you walk, how many in this room have walked a road of pain? And I don't believe that death is the worst pain. I usually go off on that for a minute. I don't believe that. But I think pain makes us go like this a lot. It's like, I got nothing to give you until I can get a fresh breath of air myself. I got nothing. And so I think sometimes we get stuff like that when we walk the road of pain. And God, open it. Set your hearts. Set your minds. Be clear. Be clear-headed. Figure out once again, who do you serve? Figure out once again, who gives you air? And that, my friends, is the spirit. It's the spirit that breathes into us. This did not work. I did not do this on my computer because I couldn't do it. And last night, I couldn't not do it, so I wrote this in my pen. Sometimes I believe in order to set our minds. This is in counseling, so I hope I can do this with you. And my prayer already this morning is that this doesn't bring you greater pain, but that you'll walk this this road with me. Sometimes I think we have to ask, what if? Go ahead and step into you see, sometimes people have asked me, not, not much, I'm sure I don't receive this in a very friendly way, but sometimes people ask me, are you ever afraid that one of your boys will die since you bury a child? I'm like, I don't even allow my head to go there. What would make you think that that would worry me at all? Just because one of my sons has moved his family into, what would you call where you live? <laughs> <laughs> 
adventurous. Adventurous. <laughs> yes. I mean, our grandchildren tell us stories about hearing gunshots. Domino's Pizza won't deliver to their home after dark. At all. At all. <laughs> he told me that, and I'm like, don't tell your mother about it. I don't want to know about Domino's Pizza. The police will not come unless two cars can come. Their alarms are for their neighbors here. What would make you think that would ever make me feel afraid? <laughs> but you see, if I believe, and I'm in agreement with Josh with this, if I believe that the Lord has told him to do this, I cannot let my own fear and worry hinder his work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, he never asked me if he could do this. Don't misunderstand. <laughs> <laughs> but when the Lord speaks, you don't have to ask your mama when you're 25 or when all wrote. Truth? But I can't let my head go there. And my other son at the time was a worship minister. Easy. In Houston, easy. But now Jonathan is a firefighter at DFW Airport and until two weeks ago worked in the explosives unit. Why would that make you think I would be afraid? I mean, but do you hear what I'm saying? Sometimes you've just got to go, what if? And I know this. I've heard Beth Moore say this, and I'm in agreement with this. If something like that happened, I would lay on the floor again. I will throw really big fits again. And I would get back up again. And I would keep whispering and speaking the name of Jesus as long as there's breath in my body. Right now, I thought I'm going to cry. Are you, are you with me? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we just have to go, what if? What if? What if loved ones have faith struggles? What if? Would you agree with me that sometimes we've watched or heard stories of our people that we love dearly having faith struggles? And they come to know Jesus after our feet aren't on dirt anymore. They come to know Jesus after the people praying aren't allowed to see it. I believe that one day they will know if they don't at the point of death. I'm not sure about that. And I won't believe you if you tell me you're sure about that. <laughs> there's some questions about that stuff. But I'm saying, your eye, you may get some of your hopes that your physical eyes don't get to see anymore. So we can't allow those to be distractions to our faith. We can't allow those to keep us from continuing to speak the name of Jesus in scary, risky places, huh? That's what we choose to do. And so note number two. I believe that to prepare your mind for action requires brave hope. And number two is moving right on down in verse 22 uh, in chapter 1 where he says, Ah, now that you've purified yourselves. That's not where I want to be. Oh, yes it is, yes it is, yes it is. Now you purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. And I know a lot of Christians that scratch their head on that one. Because we all want to be people of love. Raise your hand. Don't you want to be a person of love? Yes. But raise your hand. If you've got one or two people, you go, they make it hard. I mean, you know. But that's what we want to do. But wouldn't you agree? Now, I want to remind you again, Peter is writing to sufferers. And he's not kidding. When he says, you get up and you get about back to the business of loving one of my daughter-in-laws, Josh's wife, in fact, asked me shortly after Jenny's death, are you going to be bitter? I had an option with that, huh? Yeah. Yes. But you know what I think she was asking me? I think 
is there still going to be laughter in this house? Are you still going to play with my kids? Are you still going to be Grammy? What's Christmas going to be like at this house? Because bitterness can happen with pain. Bitter people, you've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. But Peter says, get up, and you get back to loving somebody. Brene Brown, love, 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 love her work. Shiloh's already smiling. She's heard me quote, she can quote this with me. My favorite quote of Brene Brown's is this. See if this doesn't sound like it could be scripture. Love and belonging are the irreducible needs of every man of every woman and of every child. Without love and belonging, there is always pain and suffering. But with love and belonging, there is sacred space. And our jobs, my friend, wherever you are in the journey of heartache, is to provide places for the people in your world for love and belonging. Let me tell you what that can look like for a griever. I say this with respect. Wouldn't you agree that sometimes people say some stupid stuff? <laughs> Truth. <laughs> Well-meaning. I've said some stupid stuff to grievers. But I'm a people person. I'm very social. And I did not want to get real crabby about stupid stuff people said to me. Because if I did, people were going to get scared of me and quit talking to me. <laughs> you tracking with me? <laughs> Mike Cope called Rick. Can't tell you how many people that this has helped between death and funeral. Mike and Diana buried a little girl and he said a couple of things. Number one, don't ever change your bio. You will always have three children. Now I have to tell you, this is a little side story under there. Uh, Rick was speaking at a church in West Texas. We'd, he had spoken for maybe three other times. But this night, the youth minister was going to read the bio Rick had written. Rick printed the bio, handed it to the youth minister to read. Everybody in this church, small church, knows our story. But the youth minister could not read it. And what he said is the Rosses have two children and four grandchildren. Oh. Took Jenny and her daughter out. Oh. Something filled me up. I looked at Rick. He was getting ready to speak. Rick didn't really hear it. And I didn't. I, what I really wanted to do is go throw a punch him. I mean, you go take <laughs> He left Jenny out. But Mike's words began, grace and mercy. Because people were giving you the best they got from his own story. He just couldn't read it. And I get grace and mercy. I don't know what I'm doing. I think I'm standing under Niagara Falls. And if you've ever been there, it's real noisy and loud. And it's where people's words don't get into my heart. Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. And how many times have I needed that myself? I'm a woman who can feel guilt like that. I can bear shame like that. My mom, you shame. I, you shame. I hope I've apologized to you. It gets instantaneous <laughs> obedience, but what it doesn't get is long-term obedience. Right. Because shame makes us think we're unworthy of love and belonging, even from the Lord. Guilt is from the power of light, that there's always hope. Things can be better. That I can do better. Grace and mercy for ourselves. Love one another deeply, not from your place of wounding. Love one another. Step out of bitterness. And then I want to say this one about, this is a hot topic right now on kindness. Lots of us have shirts. Kindness matters. And, oh, don't we believe it does. But I want to be really clear here. This is a definition issue for me again. Kindness and being nice are not the same. I am nice to you and I want you to like me. And I'm willing to sacrifice pieces of myself to make you like me. But kindness 
is from the Spirit. And when the Spirit gets up in our business, it's from a place of strength. And that means I may have to say some hard stuff, but I want to say it with kindness. I may have to have some hard, brave conversations, but I want to say them from kindness. Kindness means we notice people. We look into the eyes. Last week I was doing this for the school district invited me in, and I got to speak to every student in middle school. So the conversations were just rich that day. I mean, rich. But I told them, I challenged them, when you go to lunch today, look for the man or woman who's mopping the floor and just smile. Kindness. When Jenny was in, the woman who cleaned the bathroom, I never left for days. And she brought, finally, she did not speak any English, but she brought me a roll of toilet paper. And she said, my gift to you. And I said, thank you. She said, you keep this for you. I said, thank you. A kind gesture. She gave me what she had. And through our eyes, we both knew that we were believers. It was a kind gesture. And I don't believe that love is easy. I believe love is hard. I believe that love is risky. I believe that because I love so hard is why I grieve so hard. I believe that love and grief get all tied up. And when you are a sufferer, you cannot let that pain keep your love gate closed on your heart. We've got to figure out a way to continue to let it flow out of us. Brave, brave, hope. And then catch this. In that very same in, in 2 1, he talks about, therefore, because of love, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. But like newborn, like babies, crave spiritual milk. Mm, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation when you've tasted that the Lord is good. In the same paragraph that Paul's talking about loving each other, he's saying, crave the Lord. Because wouldn't you agree that some of our relationships, particularly when we're in pain, can get messed up because we're craving from people what only God can give. We're craving from another and you will always be disappointed with that. We're craving from a person what only the Spirit can breathe into you. We're craving for another person to speak or be present or have kind eyes always. And that, my friends, is the Lord. Crave Him. Drink from Him. And then, not number three, in uh, chapter two and nine, lean in to your but now story. I love the way Peter and Paul do that. They frequently talk about but now. Let me tell you who you were, but now. And sometimes, I wanted to live with one foot in my old story and one foot in my new story. I'm over here when I'm in pain or stressed or tired, and then I'm over here when things are going well, and he says, look, get into your but now story. You're not the old person. The Spirit's doing a new work. Who are you now? And sometimes in the churches of Christ, and I love us, and we're all I know. I grew up in the churches of Christ. But sometimes I think, boy, a testimony has meant a teeter-totter between my stories. But when you're able to speak your testimony and you're able to say, but let me tell you what Jesus has done for me, that there is spoken word there that is like verbal cement 
in your but now story. I'm going to live it because I spoke it. I'm going to live it because this is who I am, and I'm claiming this identity. <laughs> Give me feedback. You tracking? Mm -hmm. We together? Okay. I think that's so important that we understand the but now. I didn't read that scripture, did I? Let's see. Nine. Two. Nine. But you are a chosen people. I love this list. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you've not received mercy, but now, but now, you have received mercy. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Your identity is in him. You have a new breath, a brave breath, a brave hope. And number four is submit. Peter talks a lot about submission. And again, to people in suffering, he's talking about submitting. To people in pain. Oh, he talks about wives and husbands, slaves and masters, rulers. Talks about what we're going to do with people of authority. Look at 2, 24 and 25, where he says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live in for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. I uh, believe in submission. It took me a very long time to even let the word roll off my tongue very well. In my home, typically, we called it the S word <laughs> in marriage. <coughs> but let me tell you this. I believe it is the way of the Lord. And I don't believe people submit because someone has told them to or because they're submitting from a place of weakness. It is much easier to me to submit when I'm in my strength. And as I think Don McLaughlin said the other night, when the Spirit of the Lord lives in me, I can bend my knee lower than I thought I ever could. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It takes me to a deeper place to bend my knee. Because you see, when the Spirit of the Lord is alive in us, I'm not fighting for my power anymore. I'm not trying to prove my identity anymore. And when I feel a power struggle going down, in human experiences, there will be power struggles. And you can feel that that movement in your gut when somebody has thrown the rope at you and said, tug with me. And now we're in this power struggle. Sometimes with words and sometimes not. But when you're playing tug of war, everybody gets muddy. And sometimes, mm, I'm saying that to be nice. I want to be kind. Always. Power struggles are not for Christians. And when I believe that I've been invited into a power struggle, or even when I find myself throwing the rope at somebody else inviting them into a power struggle, drop the rope, bend your knee. Because that is when you are your strongest. When you don't have anything to fight for, you don't have an identity issue to fight for. Because we know whose we are. Amen. And the hope and the breath of the Spirit makes me stronger than I am in my flesh. I read this from Jen Hatmaker. Maybe you saw it last week where she says, 
you don't have to show up for every fight you've been invited to. <laughs> and I think that's so powerful and that's so true. Can't you picture Jesus walking away from one or two? Don't have to show up just because you've been invited. Just because somebody, and even somebody you love, says something sassy to you, doesn't mean you have to respond back. Silence sometimes speaks. I'm not talking about self-righteous silence. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, I don't know what to say here. I don't know what to say back because I don't, I don't have anything to address that with. We bend our knee out of a place of total strength. But now, story, submit, where have we been? Prepare your minds, love one another deeply from the heart, lean into your but now story, submit so that you can experience joy, and then my number five, which I believe is Peter's number five, is this, be ready to talk about Jesus, your hope. If we, were, if we had a little bit longer today, and we might have a little bit longer today, I want to get done, and I want to do Q&A, and then we might come back here. But I'm curious, how do you do that? How do you speak a word for Jesus? I love hearing stories about how people do that. Sometimes I can be good at that, and sometimes I'm not so good at that. I thought I was really good at that until a couple of weeks ago. I had this experience, and I didn't know what to say. I even walked away without an ice cream cone. It was just pretty sad for me. <laughs> I had on a shirt that said, spoiler alert, the tomb is empty. And I was on a road trip to go speak uh, in Austin. And I stopped in a Dairy Queen to go to the restroom. And my husband taught me. I didn't know this before him. But he taught me if, if you go to the restroom in a place of business, you need to buy something. <laughs> well, the closest place I could find was Dairy Queen. Oh, <laughs> oh well. And I thought, well, I'll just get a little small ice cream cone. And I'll just be on my way. So it was just as school was letting out. So I get in this long line to get an ice cream cone. And I get behind two teenage girls. And one of the girls, the first girl that saw me, looked at my shirt and she said, your shirt is hilarious, but I have no idea what it means. And I was like, oh yeah. yeah." (laughs) Talk about Jesus for a minute. I said, it's about Jesus. And before I could even say it's about Jesus, she said, I thought it was about the Vampire Diaries. And then she got so excited about the Vampire Diaries that I couldn't get a word in. And that's pretty exciting because I didn't get a word in most times. (laughs) And I just looked and her friend was like, oh. (laughs) mortified you know and I just kind of stood there and I finally I was like I don't even want ice cream anymore I'm just gonna go get in my car and I got to my car and I prayed over her friend and I prayed over her and I was like Lord I just didn't even know what to do and I don't know if he told me this or not I just felt this nudge of get on to Austin so I just pulled away and I prayed over her several times since I hope somebody has spoken a word but I was like talking about vampire diaries as I was walking away. But but I did have a better moment. I did have a better moment. And it's a moment that I thought was for him. And then I found out after Janie died, it was really for me. Have you ever had a moment like that? But I was on a flight one time from Africa, where I was teaching a grief workshop. This was before Jenny died. I was in Africa, and I was getting, I was with a group of women, and, and we all travel on the aisle seat. You know, we're like little ducks going through the airport and stuff, <laughs> all on the aisle. Well, we got to Chicago, and we traveled cheaply, so we'd been in either airport or um, airplane for hours. I mean, like over 24 hours. But I was getting ready to see Rick. I hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks, and I'm like, I want to put on makeup. I want to kind of get my head fresh. 
as good as I can do it on drama me because I get travel sick. But um, I had a moment, I thought, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to read. And so I got my book out, but then I found out I didn't have an aisle seat. So I'll go up to the counter and I'm like, I don't have an aisle seat. Can you help me? She said, there's one aisle seat left and it's back by the bathroom. I said, I'll take it. I'll take it. So are you sure? Yes, I, I want that seat. There's nobody beside me. I was reading Matt and Beth Redmond's book on Blessed Be Your Name about their own baby, the death of their baby. I'm reading that book. But also on my lap, I spread out these African crackers. They're olive oil crackers that are really, really good, and that is important to the story. And just as they're getting ready to close the door on the airplane, here comes a man running down the aisle, and he's headed for me. I was like, oh. So I stood up real fast when I did my crackers went everywhere. Uh, now right here at the Q&A at the end, this is what most people ask me after, did you eat the crackers? And the answer is, I, was going, I ate every one of them. <laughs> I raised boys and they taught me the seven second rule. And even though we were right outside the bathroom, it did not bother me at all. I got up really fast. I'm still alive. And because I've been over to pick them up though, my brand new friend that I hadn't met yet, he started helping me pick them up. So we start talking. And he's like, we're, what have you been doing? Where are you? I'm a professor in Japan, is what he's telling me. Just got divorced for the third time, haven't been home. I'm going home. And he said, you're a Christian. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, you're a really passionate Christian. I said, oh, there's a whole bunch of us. <laughs> you know, not, I mean, he's like he's been gone for decades. I'm like, there's a bunch of passionate Christians now. And he said, I used to be one of those. In fact, I used to be a youth minister. And my head went, are you kidding me? Because who calls it a minister necessarily other than us? Right. And he was one of us. And he'd gotten called out a little bit older than me, so probably close to 70 now. And he um, got called out at a church as he was the youth minister. He had let the girls pray at a Devo the night before. And when the preacher got up the next morning, he did this in the congregation and said, there are wolves among us. Oh. And he called my friend out. And my friend packed his car and left that day and did not go back to ministry. Fled the country over that story. And he had some pain. We, we've talked since. He's had a lot of pain since. But he said, tell me, why do you believe in Jesus? All of a sudden, I felt extreme intimidation. I mean, professor from Japan. And I felt this pressure in me, and I started using words and like propitiation. I'm not even sure what that means exactly, but I think I'm using it in the right context. And then I'm like, just scratch all that. Scratch all that. Let me tell you why. Because I choose to believe the Jesus story is truth. I choose to believe that somewhere in Israel there's an empty tomb. Which, by the way, we're going back in October. Anybody want to go with us to see? I want you to. Our first trip there, our guide was a Arabic Christian and he walked a lot like this up on his toes. And I walked over to him and I said, Anton, you keep talking about this being the traditional side of the tomb. Is this Jesus' tomb? And he said, we don't know. He wasn't there long enough. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that story. And so I told my friend, I choose. I choose Jesus. And can I tell you that for a long time I thought, well, no, I've got to tell you the rest of the story. Then my friend said, where are you going when you get off this plane? And my mom had taught me that was not a good question. I said, where are you going when you get off this plane? He said, I'm going home. 
haven't been home for years. I didn't go to either one of my parents' funerals. Oh. And I'm going home to Decatur, Texas. <gasps> no. That is where I live. Oh, a no. community of less than 6,000 people. And he's coming with me. <laughs> and I was like, that's where I'm going. He said, I bet you think God gave you this seat, don't you? And I bet you're going to tell all your friends, aren't you? I said, I am. I just didn't tell them I was going to be telling it for years later. You know? I am going to tell my friends. And he said, I want to talk more when we get off the plane. And so we did talk more, but I don't know the end of Stephen's story. I don't know. All I know is I felt like my job was not to mess it up for the next person that might talk to him. I wanted to be with him. I wanted to speak about Jesus, but I pray other people have invaded. But be ready to give an answer about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Be ready to speak about your hope. Mm -hmm. Be ready. What are you going to say? How are you going to voice that up? Let me tell you who he is for me. Let me tell you my but now story. Let me tell you what's going on. But I also believe in the Landon Saunders phrase of don't mess it up for the next person. Mm -hmm. It's not a feather in your cap. Mm -hmm. We're just speaking our story. We're speaking his story. We're talking about Jesus. And we're taking, oh, I love what Chris Kane, Christine Kane talked about the little flashlight for a girl mm -hmm. looking for darkness. We're just getting out our spiritual flashlights and we're saying, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you what he's done for me. Be ready to talk about your hope. And so now repetitively I have friends that I will speak into on Sunday morning. I write a ton of girls, just say the tomb is empty. Because see, when we were walking out of the hospital on February 22nd, I looked up at Rick. And what I really wanted to do, because I was overwhelmed with anxiety, I wanted to grab his shirt like that. But I didn't. I put my hands on his chest. Our son-in-law is just a little bit in front of us. And I said, you have got to remind me that what we believe is truth. And Rick looked at me and said, the tomb is empty. And those, my friends, are powerful words about Jesus, huh? People in our churches need to be reminded. The tomb is empty. And that is why we do what we do. He wasn't just a good man. He is our living hope. He infuses us. He is the hope of glory. He is capital H, hope in us. Brave, yes. Risky, yes. But he's it for us, huh? He's it. That's why we do what we do. And so, Peter cannot possibly wrap this book up. He, he does two different wrap-ups, and maybe even more if we dug a little more. But two different wrap-ups. Let's look at his wrap-ups as we're going to begin to do that too. And I'm so not finished, but we're going to wrap it up. Here we go. In 1 Peter 4, starting in 7, this was Jenny and David's marriage verse. Rick actually read it. My boys, Josh and Jonathan, did their sister's funeral, and Rick actually got up and just spoke a word at the end over us. And this was Rick's job, is to read this verse that Jenny and David had chosen. I don't get why you would choose this over a marriage, but I'm so grateful that they did. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Do you hear that? Don't get distracted by those lowercase h hopes. Be clear-minded. So you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. 
faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And then I want you to go down with me to uh, chapter 5 and 8. Here's another ending. Let's go back up to 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And then right down very next, he says, true grace, encouraging you, testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. I always have to wonder as I read these two conclusions how much Peter was reflecting on Luke 22. <clears throat> back up. Back up. One speak a word of encouragement, of hope, of bravery, of risk-taking. I want to speak a word. Can't you picture Peter? I want to do that because of the gift that the Spirit has given. And i got to say this too. When he talks about a lion devouring, again, put this in the context of suffering, because there are animals, and there are people, and there is a power of darkness that would love for you to stay down that would love for you not to have voice after you've been wounded. Would love for you to stop speaking about Jesus. In fact, when Jenny was in the hospital, I said repetitively, mostly to one of our elders and our youth minister, I'm done. I don't ever want to speak publicly. And then about two months after, or three months after she died, I had this awakening in my spirit that I knew I will never stop speaking about Jesus, <laughs> ever. I want his name to be the last name on my lips. And I want to be reaching out my hand to you, encouraging you in faith, as long as I have movement in my arm that I can do that. And so, these are some of my wishes as I reflect on First Peter. I want to be looking for hope, and it's a capital H, when I'm terrified. Faith is a mindset that expects God to act. I want to move toward hope when I see him. I want to do something really brave and trust hope to hold me. I want to invite hope into the scary space. And I want to know that hope is more important than the calm. I wrote this a year ago uh, on February 22nd on our seven-year date of Jenny's death. I remember when I was afraid I would forget I learned joy and grief can and do coexist on a deep level, on a sacred space level. I learned new meanings to old words. I've learned that frequently there are no words. 
I've learned the value of grace and mercy for myself and for others. I've learned the comfort and the safety of marble jar friends, of safe friends. I've learned new ways to use my voice that fosters deeper connections. I've quit using phrases like, you hurt my feelings or you offended me. I want to love from a deeper place. I've learned to reach out to friends for prayer, particularly faith prayers. If I just write, I'm struggling today, one of my friends will write back, the tomb is empty. I want to have people pray over my faith. I've learned to do life with an ache in my heart I didn't know possible. I've learned to do life with a Kleenex, well, really a puff, <laughs> close by. I don't cry as much anymore, but I want to be ready just in case. I've learned to whisper the name of Jesus typically three times out loud when I feel the cloud of lies moving in. I've learned to sit in my prayer posture when prayer words won't come and allow the Spirit to translate my heart. I've learned the power of a sigh, and I've learned to recognize it in you. I hear you, and I see you. I've learned the power of breathing him in. I've learned how to not only walk with a limp, but to dance with one. I've learned to be braver than I ever dreamed with him and me. I've learned the deep discipline of gratitude. And so as we close, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians 1. Two verses out of Ephesians 1, or really two sections I want to read. Ephesians 1.3 says this, going back to what I said at the very beginning about blessing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he goes on and tells us about his, our identity in him, and then he wraps it up with this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Can you hear that exaggerated language? And here we can say that's not an exaggeration. That is truth. So as we close, I want to give you Jenny's life first, and it's now become mine. It's Romans 15, 13. I end every counseling session with this and every meeting in my office with this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you, my brand new friends, may overflow with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. I'm loving it. Thank you.